Well, good morning. What a awesome <laughs> way to start a service. I, I always love to be able to hear worship in a foreign tongue. Um, anytime I've had the opportunity to go on a missions trip or, or anything like that and, and being able to sit in the presence of natives singing out to our God in their native tongue that I don't understand the lick of a word that they're singing uh, just reminds me of what it might look like one day in heaven to, to be among the nations praising God. Only then we'll be able to hear and understand what those words are. Um, and so, so very blessed uh, by that. So, so thank you. That was something I'd like to share with you this morning. Uh, some of you who've been in my office may have seen this before, but this is my grandfather. His name is Julius Earl Todd. He went by Earl. Um, I, I think uh, maybe he got made fun of maybe with the name Julius when he was younger. I don't know. But he went by Earl. Um, Earl was not a perfect man by any means, um, but which of us men are? This man was a father figure to me growing up. I spent many days of my childhood with him and my grandmother, for that matter. I spent uh, a lot of time as a child with my grandparents, and my grandfather taught me a lot of things. My grandfather taught me how to mow the grass, how when you're holding on to the lawnmower, you got to hold that lever down to keep the engine running. And uh, believe it or not, he actually had a mower that had the self-propel system on it, so he taught me how to use that as well. And how when you're mowing, you got to try to mow in a straight line. Heaven forbid a wavy line, right? Well, you got to mow in a straight line. And when you get to the end, you have to push down on the mower and pivot on that back wheel, whichever wheel it is you choose to pivot on. For me, it was the left back wheel. And you had to line up the lawnmower on that line or to the left of that line in order for the blade to continue to cut grass without leaving a strip that you would have to then go back and ruin the lines that you made. He did a good job teaching me this as you can see. My grandfather also taught me how to play golf. Uh, specifically, we would go into his backyard and he would take a, like a Home Depot five-gallon bucket, although then uh, back then it wasn't Home Depot, it was uh, some white, just typical five-gallon bucket that he'd set on one side of the yard and he'd grab a pitching wedge and uh, for those of you who don't know, a pitching wedge makes the ball go up in the air and you're, you don't hit it very far, you're at least you can hit it somewhat far, but you're not, anyway sent me to the other side of the yard, and he gave me a pile of balls. And he said, you're not allowed to touch any other club until you can start chipping that ball and hitting that bucket or making it into the bucket on a consistent basis. And to this, game, that's probably, uh, to this day, that's probably part of my golf game that I'm strongest at is, is those little short chips onto the green, as Bornwell and Baggio and Kyle can attest. My grandfather, though not a perfect man, also set an example to me of what it meant to love his wife and his children. Something I'm eternally grateful for. I remember as, a, as his grandchild, and again, spending many days with him, uh, I remember uh, sitting at the dining room table with a plastic model kit and, and gluing it together and trying not to glue my fingers together because I was the worst. 
I have very fond memories of my grandfather. Um, my grandfather, as I showed you, had a band. It was a bluegrass band. Maybe you've heard of them. They, they actually won many awards in the state. Uh, Earl Todd and the Sundown Valley Boys was the band name. And, and then they would go on uh, bluegrass festival tours. And, and even so, and, and this was a family affair. So my uncles were in the band. My mom was in the band. My mom played mandolin and was a vocalist. And, and in the, on this record, she's actually pictured on the back along with her brothers. She's itty-bitty back here holding that mandolin, and I think, if I remember correctly, she's 14 in this recording. None of my relatives knew how to read music. They played everything by ear, which still dumbfounds me today. For those of you who can play by ear, there's a little bit of jealousness here for me. I always admired my grandpa's music. I remember... We would have family gatherings, and in and, and my side of the family, we got together for everything, birthday parties. I, I remember having birthday parties as a, as a kid that all my uncles and aunts came to, and all of their kids, and all my cousins. It was a full family affair. And I remember at, at these gatherings, my, my, my uncles and my mom and my grandfather, they'd get out their instruments, and they'd start jamming. And these are wonderful memories that I have. I always remember growing up wanting to play guitar just like him. And, and though I'm now playing guitar, I'm nowhere close to how he played guitar. Uh, and so I still have a lot of work to do. As I've shared with you in the past about my story, my, my own personal testimony, I've had several men in my life that I've called dad or looked to as a father figure. My grandfather was one of them. And... <laughs> I had this overwhelming thought as we were coming into Father's Day this week and where we were at. I always thought that was a bad thing, having many men in my life that I've called dad. And don't get me wrong, it has its downside. It has its difficulties. But as I sat and I, and I, and I thought about that, it turns out that having any kind of father who cares for and is in the home is better than not having one at all. For some, Father's Day is a joyous day filled with laughter and memories, time spent with family. For others, it can be a difficult reminder of what they once had or maybe never had. We're living in a day today where our society uh, has an epidemic of fatherlessness. Fatherlessness has become a major concern and major issue in our society. And uh, the message to men uh, is, you don't matter, we're going to elevate our, our women, our mothers. It's okay that we don't have fathers in the home because mothers can do it all. I was raised by a mother who did it all, and she, I love her, God bless her. But she knew she needed to have a man in, in my life. And I thank her for that. According to the National Fatherhood Initiative, the 2018 U.S. Census 
shows that 19 and a half million children, which comes to more than one in four, more than one in four, live without a father in the home. I have four children. Statistically speaking, that would be as if one of my children or more grew up without me being in the home, statistically speaking. Uh, the National Fatherhood Initiative uh, has studies that, and, and you, might, you might sit there and go, well, what's the big deal? Some, do, some fathers don't deserve to be in their life, and yes, that's true too. But what, what's the big deal about a father not being in the home? Well, lots of things. Statistics and studies show that adolescent teen boys who live with their dads are less likely to carry guns and deal drugs. Boys have fewer behavior problems and girls have fewer psychological problems when they have an involved dad in their life. Daughters are less likely to engage in risky sexual behavior when they have a consistent contact and sense of closeness with their dads. These are all studies and, and findings from uh, the National Fatherhood Initiative. And, and I don't know if, if you are aware of this or not, but we have a local county, Coshocton County Fatherhood Initiative here in town. Um, and I'd like to share a video from them uh, that uh, was presented to me that I just think is very necessary for us to just see what our local fatherhood initiative is doing. Um, it's appropriate with today being Father's Day uh, to, to focus on this for a little bit. And if you're listening later on uh, this week and you're not with us this morning, we miss you. But you can watch this video on our Facebook page. Uh, the recording will pause and we'll come back to it after the video is shown and, and, and things for there. So the guys are going to roll that here in just a second. Thank you. Thank you. you can uh, go ahead and rearrange your seats. So I'm in, in a place in Scripture here in Judges where we're going to continue what we started last week. So I haven't done many of these like, continuations um, but last week, if you were here, you, you know we started in chapter 4 on the story of Deborah and Barak. Uh, we're going to continue our study in there. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Judges, chapter 4. We're going to finish chapter 4. We're going to finish where we left off. And we're going to continue into chapter 5 with kind of an overview of the chapter. And I'll explain why in a little bit. Last week, uh, if you were here or if you weren't, uh, we learned that Deborah was a prophetess. And we saw how in Old Testament and New Testament, God has raised men and women to serve in the role of a prophet. We also learned that in the Old Testament, a prophet had the role of foretelling, right? Looking forward. And how today, a prophet is more of a foreteller, Right? There is no future revelation coming. There is no future uh, vision coming from the Lord because the canon of Scripture is closed. There is no more revelation. 
But a prophet today, when they hear error, they go, whoa, 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 that's not what God's word says. And they're forth telling of scripture. So we discussed last week a little bit of the differences there. We also learned that Deborah, was, in addition to being a prophetess, she was also called a judge. But we learned that her role as a judge looked a little bit different than that of the other judges we have read about so far. When we look at the other judges that we've read through so far with Othniel, uh, Ehud, Shamgar, um, and then after Deborah comes Gideon, if we look at those men that are called judges, their role is slightly different than Deborah's. And we have to acknowledge this. Those male judges were given the role of leader, of deliverer or saver. They actually, in their judging, took on the role of delivering Israel from the oppressor. There's a Hebrew word for this called yasha, which means deliverer or one bringing salvation. With Othniel, with Ehud, with Shamgar, and with Gideon, they all receive this title of Yasha. But nowhere in Deborah's account do we see that title given to her. Now, does that mean that she didn't have a vital role in God's plan of, of, of saving Israel? No. But she had a different role, right? She had a different calling, a different role to play in Israel's salvation. And it was not leading Israel as a yasha or a savior. So we're going to pick up back here in the text. And just to kind of recap a little bit, we, we see this pattern restart at the beginning of four, where, where Israel, after Ehud dies, Israel falls into apostasy, right? Uh, they fall away from the Lord. And so, therefore, God says, okay, you can choose those idols, and you can choose to fall away if you want to, and sells Israel into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, along with Sisera, who was the commander. Think of, like, the second in command, and uh, after 20 years of cruel slavery, Israel finally has enough and they cry out to Yahweh, Lord, Lord save us. So we see that pattern of, of apostasy and um, you know, th that circle that we've been talking about that I don't actually have in front of me here. Uh, servitude, there it is. Apostasy, servitude, supplication, and salvation playing out here. We talked about how um, Sisera, the commander of the king's army, had these 900 iron chariots, which would have been the equivalent of a military force of military tanks uh, in comparison to what the Israelites would have had available to them. And so a very distinct advantage in, the, in Sisera's way. We see that uh, in her role as prophet, Deborah calls out a man named Barak and holds him to the calling that he received to, to rescue Israel. Right? We see that, that, that Deborah commands Barak to come to her, and she says, Has God not commanded you to go? What are you doing here? 
right? So, so Deborah, in her role as prophet, had, had the knowledge directly from God that God had already called Barak to go and lead the military, and yet he wasn't doing it. And so she, she kind of calls him out on that, as, as a prophet would. And so uh, Barak, and, and last week I, I might have been a little harsh on, on this word of, of calling Barak a coward, although I think there's reason to believe that, but certainly is lacking faith in the Lord in this calling. Because he says, well, I'm not going to do that unless Deborah, you, come with me. Because I know you are a prophet. And Deborah says, well, that's fine. If you want me to come with you, I will. Um, but because of your lack of faith, instead of you receiving the glory, a woman's going to receive the glory. And so we, we pick up here in verse 10, where uh, Deborah and Barak arise, and then they finally go out to the battlefield. And we see that Barak is leading 10,000 men to battle. In verses 11 through 16 here. Verse 10 says, And Barak called out to Zebulun and Naphtali, these are tribes, to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. And then we start here in verse 11. It says, it, you know, just as the story starts to feel like it's starting to gain some traction, we come across verse 11. And it says, Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pinched, pitched his tent as far away as the yoke in Zaninim, which is near Kadesh. We kind of get this little uh, precursor to uh, what's going to be revealed later with J.L., so let's pause a moment and, and, and talk about who these Kenites are, right? So uh, the Kenites were a distant relative or distantly related to Israel by way of Moses' marriage, right? So they're in-laws, if you will, the Kenites. Specifically, we see here recorded in Judges that, that this particular Kenite, Heber, is a descendant of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. Now, some of you might go, I don't remember the name Hobab with Moses. And you'd be right. He's given a different name in, in, in that account. But there is an account in Numbers 10.29 where, where we see Hobab, Moses' father-in-law. So, in my study of trying to figure out, like, well, what's, you know, what's going on here? Um, the... Most scholars believe that, you know, back then, uh, different cultures had different names for people. And so it's very possible that the Hebrews would have called Moses' father-in-law one name, and the Canaanites called him Hobab, right? Um, and that seems to make sense based on historical context and, and, and cultures and things like that. But I think the fact that we have Numbers 10.29 list Hobab as Moses' father-in-law uh, is pretty good credence that, that it's true here also in Judges where he's listed with the same name as Moses' father-in-law. So these Kenites 
uh, including Heber and his wife, J.L., which we'll, we'll come to in a little bit, um, are distantly related to Israel. They're not Israelites, but they're kind of the in-laws, if you will, through, through Moses' marriage. We also see that uh, if we continue to read that Heber is the husband of J.L., and we'll also see that at worst, Heber and the Kenites at worst are at peace with the king of Canaan through some mutual agreement maybe, and at best are a supporting ally of the king. So we have this little caveat here in, in verse 11 that sets the stage for the introduction of J.L., Verses 12 through 16, we see Sisera hearing and responding to Barak's military move. Remember, Barak and Deborah, uh, Barak has called 10,000 men to follow him, and he's marching them on into the field because God has commanded it. And so they're marching into place. Sisera hears of this. Verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinanam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera calls out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Haggim to the river Kishon. So we see Sisera responding to the news that Barak is on the move and going into, marching in. And he responds by bringing all his force to destroy the Israelites. And they come to a clash at the river Kishon. This is where Deborah uh, prophesies, is, is given the command from God, from Yahweh, to say, now's the time to strike. Verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army fell before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled, on, uh, fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hersheth Haggim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. We see here Deborah playing that role again of prophet, right? We see this very often in, in the Old Testament where the prophet, uh, you know, now's the time to go. Now's the time to act. And so she's playing that role. And she says, up, the Lord has given you, this is the day. Go, do it. The Lord goes out before you. And we see in verse 15 that the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots. Now, we don't really understand here in the language in chapter 4, like, what does this mean specifically? So if you will, flip the page into chapter 5 to verse 20 and 21, where we get a little bit more detail of what the Lord actually did to rout Sisera. Starting in verse 20, it says, From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, 
March on my soul with might. So clearly we see that the Lord intervenes here by swelling the river, making the ground soft and muddy. Now, how well do horses and chariots move through mud? Not so good, right? Not so good. And so the Lord supernaturally intervenes by swelling the river, which takes away the advantage of the chariots. Remember, these chariots had such a strategic advantage. They would have been equivalent to these military tanks of the day because they were, they were fast. They, they had two, you had your driver and you had your fighters sitting on that chariot and they could attack really fast. You had the horse. And, and so even though Barak had 10,000 men at his disposal, the chariots swung the advantage in their favor. But God supernaturally intervenes and routes that and takes all that advantage away by swelling the river and making the ground soft and making it to where those chariots are useless at best. So in in this would have swung the battle in favor of Israel and Barak. And by Sisera's reaction, he saw that too, right? Because he flees. But Sisera, starting in verse 17, says, But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Here introduces Jael. This is, again, the wife of the Kenite who was at peace with the king of the land, Canaan, right? Jabin, the king. It says, Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So Sisera, he, so he turned aside to her in the tent, into the tent, and she covered him with a rug, like, like a blanket. Right, covers him with a blanket. Now I want you to I want you to think about something here. So Sisera, God God floods the ground. It's muddy. The chariots aren't moving. Sisera sees. Oh boy, I'm in trouble. All my men are like our advantage is toast. They they way outnumber us, and he flees. Well, he's got to flee through the mud. Have you ever tried to run on 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 not solid ground, like? Like, we're going to the beach, right? And walk, just walking through loose sand is exhausting, right? Try running through it, loose sand. It's exhausting. And then throw on, like, your armor and your sword and your shield. And Sisera is running for his life. And he's exhausted by the time he reaches this tent. Right? He reaches the tent and he's probably completely wiped of all of his energy. And Jael says, hey, my Lord, come, come here. I'll, I'll come into the tent. Rest. Which would have been, he would have, what we see here is Sisera at least understood that there was peace. So whether Sisera knew Jael as Heber's wife and knew the relationship there or not, we don't, 
specifically know, but, but clearly Sisera goes, okay, this is a safe place to go and to rest. Because he does, he enters in and he lays down and she covers him with a rug or a blanket. And he said to her, verse 19, and Sisera says to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. So he's, under, he's, been, he's exhausted from running through the mud with his weight. He's running for his life. And he reaches this tent, which he perceives to be safety. And, he, and he's exhausted, and he gets covered up with a blanket. The other, the other weekend, a couple weekends ago, Jacob went for a run. With, with Bornwell, and it's the first time that he's been on a distant, long-distance run for a while. I think they ran like three miles in the morning, and I see Jacob after the run, and he's like this on the couch. Ugh. <laughs> Just dead, right? Just completely wiped out. Um, and there's something about that that is you're just exhausted. Throw, throw a blanket on you and give you some milk, and pretty soon you're probably going to fall asleep. Which is what we see happen with Sisera. He falls asleep. He's, he, he believes he's, a, he's in safety. He believes he's safe. He's exhausted. And he's warm under the weight of a blanket or a rug. And has been given milk, something very soothing. And he says to her, if anyone comes, say no one's here. So he's given her instructions. He believes he's safe. All the meanwhile, while this is happening, all the meanwhile, Barak is pursuing. Barak is trying to get to Sisera, right? Because kill the commander, the king will be next, right? This was part of the call. It was, was to conquer this army. And Sisera was the only man left in the army. Verse 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Now, I have four levels of anatomy and, and physiology. The temple bone is your softest bone, right? Right, Doc? Softest bone, temple bone. So this isn't just a theory. Like, this is very practical that she could have taken a tent peg and crushed through, okay? Very graphic. Yes, I know. It is. But J.L., the wife, puts a tent peg. Now, 
There's a whole list of things we could get into about, you know, the treachery and, and, the, and, and all of that. But, but what we see is that God used Jael to subdue and to kill Sisera because that was God's plan, right? And this fulfills Deborah's prophecy that a woman would receive the glory. As Deborah prophesied, because of Barak's lack of faith, a woman, Jael, gets the glory for killing Sisera instead of Barak, the leader of Israel. This would have created some sense of shame for Barak for not being the one to defeat the commander. Um, at, at worst, it would have created some shame. At, at best, he doesn't receive the honor that he believes he should have had. Okay? Which fulfills that prophecy that Deborah says. And then in verses 23 and 24, we see that God receives credit for subduing the king. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So we see that uh, God uses Deborah and Jael, two women, to be part of the plan of, of rescuing Israel. But God does raise up Barak as the leader of the men, uh, the leader of the 10,000. And because of his lack of faith, God says, well, you're not going to receive the, the honor that you would receive because of your lack of faith. But nonetheless, God himself receives the glory for subduing Jabin the king. Deborah does not get credited with being the leader of Israel. Instead, Barak does. We actually see this in 1 Samuel 12, 11, that says, quote, And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. Hebrews 11.32 also mentions Barak. says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets. You might sound like I'm beating, it might sound like I'm beating a dead horse here with, with just reiterating what we see very clearly in Scripture, that Deborah had her role to play, but it was not the leader of Israel. She had a very important role to play. It was very complementary to Barak as the leader, right? To make the argument from Scripture that because God used Deborah in the way that, she, that he did, it's okay for a woman to lead the church, is a misnomer. It's, it's not understanding what we see in Scripture. In fact, it actually supports what all of Scripture teaches between the roles of men and women in the home and in the church, that, male are, that the men are to lead. That doesn't mean that the woman's role is any less. It just means it's not the leader. Right? And God calls that good. It's a good thing when it's done properly. Can it be abusive? Can it be a bad thing? Yes, and God does not like that either. <laughs> God does not honor that. 
But that's why the church uh, in the New Testament, uh, husbands are given the responsibility, the weightiness of leading like Christ leads the church. That's a heavy, heavy responsibility to lead like Christ leads the church. So that, that's chapter 4. That brings us to chapter 5. Now, where Judges chapter 4 is a historical account written in narrative, chapter 5 records the same events that we just read in Hebrew poetry. And there are places in chapter 5 that give us a little bit more detail, like we, we already learned. But chapter 5 is written in Hebrew poetry, specifically written to be a song. If you have the English Standard Version, um, the, the title of chapter 5 says, The Song of Deborah and Barak. This reminded me uh, of Moses's and Miriam's song in Exodus 15, which would have been written roughly 206 years earlier than this song. There is something about Hebrew poetry that uh, the, the typical reader doesn't fully understand if we don't understand how to read Hebrew poetry. Uh, Hebrew poetry is, is not rhythmic. It's not uh, rhyming. It's not, uh, if you were to read chapter 5 and try to put it to uh, a melodic tune, good luck. <laughs> it's hard to do. Hebrew poetry isn't written to be the same thing that we think of when we think of a song or poetry. It had a different purpose even. It had a different style, even. It was written specifically for the truth to be found in the writing through discovery. And so chapter 5, when you, when you read chapter 5, you get a little bit more detail than you do in chapter 4, but it's the same account. It's still historical. It's still accurate to what took place. And it just reminds me that there is something about songs, isn't there? There's something about songs that, that bring us to the Lord. There's something about singing and there's something about music. There's something about glorifying God through song. There just is. I showed you this record earlier of my grandfather. He passed away when I was 14 passed away from lung cancer and emphysema. I remember the moment well as he was in the home on his deathbed gasping for air. Whole families in the house. And I remember him laying in the bed and <coughs> trying to gasp air and say his goodbyes to each of us. I'll never forget that memory. It's burned into my brain. I remember also in that moment as a 14-year-old boy feeling like I should have done something. 
what can a 14-year-old boy do for a grandfather who can't breathe because he's destroyed his lungs? Nothing. And, and I'm thankful to Jesus who has, who, has, who has healed me of that woundedness to where I can now recall that memory, even now, out loud, and not be overwhelmed with grief and tears. But, another, another fact, he was only in his 50s when he passed away, which has been hard for our family to lose him at such a young age. Where am I going with this? Well, I spent my high school years fantasizing about being a musician. Specifically, writing music. I guess it was my way of trying to remind myself of him or, or to, to keep him close, the memory of him close to me. I even, like I said, I even tried my hand at songwriting, to which I found that I'm not very good at. <laughs> I guess you either have the gift of songwriting or you just don't. I, I like writing, but writing music is a whole nother thing. Chapter 5 is a song. It was written to record the events that we just read about in chapter 4. And like I already said, it's similar to Exodus 15 where both accounts of Scripture are songs that come immediately as a response to what God has just done. In Exodus 15, with Moses' and Miriam's song, the song is all about God rescuing Israel from Egypt and, and the waves closing in over Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians and, and bringing them into safety. Came right at the coattail of what God had just done. And they, and they sing out to the Lord for what he's just done. Here in chapter 5 of Judges, we see that the Lord has just rescued, after 20 years of oppression, God has just rescued Israel from Canaan, this evil king. And immediately, it says, verse 1, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinadam, on that day sang, they sang in response to what God has just done. Both songs, Exodus 15 and Judges 5, are historically accurate and powerful. And they're specifically written to give God glory and to remind the people of what God has just done. They're not typical. They're, they're not what we would think of a typical song. They, when we think of a song, we, we think of measure and, and, and timber and, and melody and, and rhythm and, and rhyming. But when you look at these songs, you're not going to see that. But that doesn't make them any less a song. And the fact that there was 206 years difference between them means that even if they were put to melody, which they probably were, we just don't know what it is, means that they're now in a different culture, they're in a different part of the world, the advancements in music technology would have been completely new and different. And so this song probably sounded melodically different than Moses' and Miriam's song as well. 
And yet, both songs honor God and glorify him for what he had just done. And isn't that what worship songs are all about? Isn't that what our worship singing is supposed to do, is to honor God for who he is and for what he's done? Yes? Yes and amen? Thank you. Thank you. You're tracking with me? Worship is about proclaiming the wondrous things God has done and the things that are about him, about his character. Now, I once had a conversation with somebody who struggled, and and that wasn't here, so don't, this isn't anyone here. But I once had a conversation with an elderly saint who was struggling with the new songs. And this person held the hymnal and said, these, these are God's songs. Yes, and amen, they are. They are God's songs. But I implored a little bit. I I said, so what do you mean by that? And the person said, only these songs are God's songs. Nothing else. And I have a problem with that, theologically speaking. Are those God's songs? Absolutely. Yes and amen. They were written by saints that, that God was active in their life and doing major things. But to isolate the songs that honor and worship God to a small sample of all of history is not theologically accurate. I wonder what this person would have done with the song of Deborah and Barak and and the song of Moses and Miriam, whether that counts as God's songs or not. Because those aren't clearly in that hymnal. So the reality is, is that God's people have been writing songs about him for a very, very, very long time. And God's people have been singing songs to God for a very, very, very long time. And when we actually look at Scripture, and we even look to the book of Revelation, which is a time yet to come, we see through Revelation that God's people are singing new songs, even in heaven. Recently, I've done a word study in the Bible for the word sing. And in my capabilities, I found 115 occurrences. If you throw in singing, sang, sung to the choir master, anything that would reveal that the text is talking about a song, it's overwhelming. Too many to count. But what is clear throughout Scripture is that God's people are commanded to sing to him. And not only are they to sing to him, they're to sing new songs to him as well. The Psalms are full of commands, not only to sing, but to sing a new song to the Lord. I believe that if we want to be prepared for eternity, we need, to, we need to take on a posture where we are eager to embrace, learn, and sing new songs that honor and glorify God. Now, 
that doesn't mean we throw all the old ones out. Because they too honor God and glorify God. But as a posture of a people, we have to understand that all of eternity is going to be learning new songs. And we can honor and worship God through that as well. And that learning and embracing this posture of learning new songs should bring us joy. Yes, it's challenging, and I get that. I'm working on it. But learning new songs can bring us joy if we understand the theology behind it. That we're going to be doing this for a long, long time. (laughs) Learning new songs. If we look closely at our culture today, God is still active. God is still doing things, new things. He is still drawing the lost sinner to himself through ways that maybe we don't understand. But God is still actively drawing a lost people to himself. He's using the church to be a part of that agent. He doesn't need the church, but he uses the church. God is still doing wondrous new things to lost people, and people are writing songs about it because he's still alive and active. Even in this generation, we have a generation of artists who are writing and singing new songs about God and what he's doing so that he continues to receive the glory. And that's what worship songs have been all of history. Writing about what God's doing and what God has done. And I want us to be a people, I want the church, us locally, but the church to have the posture of understanding that as long as the song is giving God the glory and not man, (laughs) Right? As long as the song is written to honor and glorify God for what he's doing, for who he is, we should be willing in a posture to have joy in learning and singing that song. Because that's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. Amen? And that's exactly what we see in chapter 5 in the song of Deborah and Barak. They sing a new song. They're recounting all of God's wondrous deeds from chapter 4. Even the tent peg through, through the, the skull and laying dead. They sing a new song recounting all of his deeds and rescuing Israel. And they come to the end of the song and they proclaim this truth. Verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Oof. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And then we see at the end of the song, it goes back to a narrative. It says, In the land, Israel had rest for 40 years. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are doing new things. You are God who continues to do new things. You are continuing to work in this day, even though, even though it, uh, 
some of us struggle with what we're seeing in our culture and, and all the struggles we see, the fatherlessness that we talked about earlier, the broken homes, the, the drugs, and the, the, the pride, uh, all the things that we're exposed to, Lord. You are still at work drawing lost people to yourself. And you're doing it in new ways that, that you haven't maybe done before, or at least not that we have record of. And Lord, there are people who are having life-changing experiences as they surrender to you through repentance and faith, and they're writing songs about it. Lord, my prayer and my heart is that we get back to the basics of the truth of your word about what it looks like to be your church, to be your people, to lay down uh, the things that we hold so dear and be in a posture of what Scripture teaches. Help us as we lead to lead well. Help us as we, as we teach your word and, and sing new songs and teach new songs. Help us to do it well in a posture of humility, in a posture of love for you, Lord, thank you for, for your word that, that clearly lays out the roles between man and woman, both in the home and in the church. Thank you that there is no confusion if we approach the word humbly and say, Lord, you speak. It is very clear. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in this church and out of this church, Lord, that, that as we uh, try to turn our vision and turn our focus from, from the inside to the outside to our, to our community, Lord, that you would help us to embrace and embody the great commandment to love you through our worship, through our service, through our giving, through, through uh, our, our devotion, but also to love others the way you love us. Help us to embody and to live out the great commandment to make disciples, not just people who come to church, but, but that we're investing our life in, uh, investing the truth of your word into and raising up young men and women to know what your word says. But not to just know what it says, but to, to be active doers of your word. Lord, I believe you have us here this day, this hour, this time, for a time such as this. Help us, Lord, as we walk into the unknown with you leading the way. Because, Jesus, we need you. We can't do it on our own. Holy Spirit, we need you. We can't do it in our own strength. Heavenly Father, we need you because we can't love without you loving us first. So Lord, I pray that uh, you would do what only you can do. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.